I don't need to tell you how divisive political discourse can get these days. I don't want to change the names of Robert E. Lee or Stonewall Jackson or any other name of Civil War period. But I should probably mention that not all the views contained herein reflect the ideals and values of the Commit Partnership. In my opinion, these measures do nothing but create division, cynically reopening scars of discord for partisan political gain. It's no secret my own personal views are going to affect the way I cover any topic. And you restrict our school choices for new names in a way that no other school has been restricted. But I do want to make clear my aim here is not to win an argument, but provide a historical context to a policy decision that has already been made. Those are just political terms and talking points that sound good on paper if crafted and embellished by a skilled writer. And my hope is, regardless of personal beliefs, What are you going to take down our American flag and our state flag too? Anyone can come away from the next half hour with an enhanced understanding of the facts surrounding this decision. Changing names now after almost 80 years is like deciding to change the name cat or dog or cow to something else some committee will decide on. But I also need to warn you, this discussion contains language and descriptions of violence that may not be suitable for small children. Now, none of these facts matter to those proponents of name change. For them, Jackson and Lee are flat, one-dimensional characters, unambiguously evil and wholly irredeemable. It's simple to think that way. Name changes are, after all, the easiest form of expression for race-centric social justice warriors. Thank you, Mr. Wolf. Your time has expired. On September 26, 2017, the Dallas Independent School District took a vote to fast-track the renaming process for four elementary schools. Robert E. Lee, Stonewall Jackson, William L. Cappell, and Albert Sidney Johnston. These schools were chosen because each of these men were generals in the Confederacy. The school district elected to waive the normal renaming process because it could take a year or longer, and might result in a name staying the same. And in the wake of events in Charlottesville and elsewhere around the country, this was deemed, unanimously, to be unacceptable. But that unanimity among the elected officials was not shared by all of their constituents. Your resolution creates a new and separate set of rules. Boy, my biggest heroes were Robert E. Lee and Harriet Tubman. Treating us like no other Dallas school community has ever been treated. Andrew Jackson and Jesse Jackson, Mr. October himself from the New York Yankees. By focusing on your school names, you implicitly treat the black community as infantile and inferior. And I want to repeat, all the other school communities in the district get the old rule, but not us. Incapable of the emotional strength to deal with an unpleasant history. We get different rules. That's because loving America didn't make you a racist. This school board meeting had more attendees than any other that year. And of the handful that came to oppose the changes, one distinct theme emerged. Political. Everything's political now. Political identity politics. The charged political component of this issue is an adult issue, not a child's issue. And it's not fair to them. And that much is true. The kids that attend these schools find themselves directly affected by political decision-making they had no part in. But that didn't start when people started calling for a change. 
Every child who has passed through the doors of each of these four schools, one of which is nearly a hundred years old, has unwittingly and unwillingly been shaped by another politically motivated act, the choice of these names in the first place. I was completely against this, by the way. But because of these particular schools that were built in the late 50s, after Brown versus Board of Education, the names selected were purposeful. They were purposeful to poke the eye of the Supreme Court and say, hey, Supreme Court, we're going to do what we're going to do here in Dallas, Texas. And very, very specific, it's very interesting that the names of Confederate generals were chosen during this very, very narrow period of time. I mean, this was a purposeful decision. And that is what changed my mind. That's school board trustee Edwin Flores discussing the two schools that are in his district, Cabell and Johnston, and the very political circumstances which led to their names being chosen. As it turns out, both these schools and the two others arose out of very specific and rather divisive political eras. And in order to understand why it was necessary to undo the actions of older generations, we have to revisit them. History is history. Trying to erase it is a dangerous undertaking, leaving wide open the possibility of repeating itself. I couldn't agree more. I'm Joshua Kumler, and this is The Miseducation of Dallas County, powered by Commit. Part 1. April 2nd, 1921. The Trinity River Bottoms. Midnight. Alexander Johnson was a bellboy at the Adolphus Hotel. He was kidnapped after allegedly bragging of sexual relations with white guests. For that, he was being branded by acid with the letters K, K, K. In total, there were 18. The victim, two reporters brought along to publicize the deed, and 15 men, business leaders, police officers, all wearing white hoods. One of them was dentist Hiram Wesley Evans. There is no hatred in my heart for any individual, nationality, or race upon the face of the earth today. I love all humanity. For that reason, my supreme love is for America. October 24th, 1923. Clam Day at the Texas State Fair. I believe that the safeguarding of sacred traditions can be accomplished only by keeping our citizenship at the highest level of intelligence and health and virtue. Therefore, I stand for the survival of the fittest in this nation because that means material and moral blessings for all the world. Over 150,000 people had gathered from across the state to hear Evans now Imperial Grand Wizard for the entire nation, deliver a speech entitled The Menace of Modern Immigration. 
The immigrant must be the right racial and national stock. 90% of the alien influx have neither our home standards nor, in most cases, the desire to attain them. They are the tenement herd. In two short years, Evans and his associates had become the political kingmakers of Dallas. Through a grassroots campaign carried out in 1922, Dallas Klan members, or at least men who condoned them, were elected to the state legislature, judgeships, county commissioner's court, and even a U.S. Senate seat. In 1923, they did the same for every citywide position. Together, the South with its Negro problem and the New York, New England section with its hordes of inferior immigrants are largely responsible for much of the political prostitution that is now a curse to our country. In another year, the Klan's nationwide prominence would severely diminish, thanks in large part to a murder carried out by Nathan Fox, a friend of Evans, and former editor of the Dallas Times-Herald. The low mentality of savage ancestors of jungle environment is inherent in the bloodstream of the colored race in America. There could never be intermarriage between whites and blacks without God's curse upon our civilization. There is not a semblance of racial hate in my heart. I say all this because it is the truth and must be said. But back in Dallas, the same slate of municipal candidates once again dominated in 1925, despite a prolonged public relations campaign carried out against the organization by the Dallas Morning News. And the reasoning behind their criticism underscores the essential nature of the conflict. This exhibition bore false witness against Dallas. White supremacy is not imperiled. For the original Ku Klux Klan, there was some reason for existence. There is no occasion for the revival of it now. So what we have, then, are two political factions arguing not over the value of white supremacy, but rather the most effective means of preserving it. The more business-friendly political methods eventually won out, but not before the Klan installed sympathetic officials in City Hall, the police department, and even the school board. And in 1926, the name Robert E. Lee was chosen for a new elementary school. Quote, because he represented the highest type of manhood. Part 2 It was an early age that my eyes were aroused against prejudice. The following is read from the oral history of A. Maceo Smith. Smith was a community organizer with the NAACP, who came to Dallas in 1933 to help revive a moribund Negro Chamber of Commerce. You had very little 
no articulation of blacks with the ongoing of the city. I mean, it was you have your little thing on this side of town and white folks on the other side of town, and the twain didn't meet, just weren't involved. Smith sought to change that, and soon found the perfect opportunity to provide the Dallas African-American community with a major platform, the upcoming Texas Centennial. He collaborated with the legendary Texas folklorist John Mason Brewer on a presentation to the Texas legislature. When they opened up, the chairman said to me, we can't give you but 20 minutes. I said, well, thank you very much. And I talked for 45 minutes, then said, sir, I'm sorry. And he said, go on. You're the only one who makes it seem like there should be a celebration. To make a long story short, we were very well received. But they were interested in more than just this symbolic victory. They wanted real political agency, too. That same year, a special election was called to fill a vacancy in the Texas legislature, and 65 candidates entered the race. One was Eamon S. Wells, an African-American whose campaign was managed by Smith. Well... This was at the time that we were trying to get this money to set up Negro participation at the Centennial. And some of the key leaders, whose names I'd rather not for history's sake, came, called us in, and said, Now you boys want, you know, the Negro's participation. Well, if you pull this black out of the race, you see, why, you'll get your money. Well, the two key campaign managers of Wells' program was a Reverend Maynard H. Jackson and myself. So we declined and went ahead and pursued our efforts. Let me interrupt you just one moment. When you said the key leaders, who came to you with this offer? Do you mean the key leaders in the legislature or from Dallas? Dallas whites came to us and said this would stir up race hatred and all of that. We ain't going to have no blacks, and I could use some other names that they said in the legislature, you know. Uh, They tried to get us first on the money and then trap us the other way, but we stood firm and said no. The city and state pulled all their funding for a Hall of Negro life at the Texas Centennial. But Smith's involvement in the project made him connections with some powerful Texans, one of whom was able to lobby Vice President John Nance Donald for the needed funds. Since we had to get the money from outside rather than from Texas, Texas failed to play up the fact that we had a federal grant. But we used it to broaden our base of operation in spite of Texas's failure. But even more importantly, Eamon Wells came in sixth out of 65, losing by a difference of less than 900 votes. Dallas-area blacks had proven to be a powerful voting bloc, and Smith took advantage of this by forming the Progressive Voters League, registering voters and encouraging them to pay their poll tax. So we ended up January 31st, I believe, 37, with 5,000 blacks, which the Dallas Journal, this was the evening paper, published the fact that there were 5,000 blacks registered. Well... This created quite a bit of excitement because the total voting strength now in Dallas was about 30 or 35,000, 5,000 of them blacks. Well, if you've got 5,000 and then you've got five or eight tickets running for the council election, you know, well, you've got something. 
We had a little office up there in the Crawford building. All the candidates and their tickets paid us a visit. They might not admit this, because they ain't never admitted walking up those stairs in that building. We didn't invite them, but they see us and talk about the Negro vote, and we give them an hour. And one guy came in and handed us a ticket and said, Well, boys, let's make a short order. How much? <laughs> What did he say? He said, How much? How much? Well, he had been used to paying, you know. Okay. And you told him what? I said, Sir, our preacher here doesn't curse, but I do. And I used a few words. That meant no? I guess. Our platform was a five point deal. First was Negro police, you see. Did you ask for a certain number or just. The privilege of being a policeman, you see. The next was a public housing program. We wanted a recreational center run by blacks, you see. We wanted a new high school and wanted increased employment in city government. These were the five. We said, now, gentlemen, what's your position on these? It's either yes or no only because we have no other program. Each of those tickets endorsed that total program. We won five seats out of that nine, and the whole five point program was carried out during that administration. Lincoln High School was a product of this. And by the way, this is the only breakthrough in 40 years. The Citizens Charter Association have won nine seats every time, but here was a majority. They lost five. That was when blacks steadied. Now, this is something I think history should record because it was the result of people's actions on the home front. By 1939, the African American community had made huge strides from just a decade prior. The Wahoo Recreation Center for African Americans was opened up. Employment for blacks and city jobs increased by 300%. And the horrific overcrowding at the Booker T. Washington School, which was then serving 1,900 students in a building meant for 600, would finally be addressed with the opening of Lincoln High School. But inevitably, reactionary hostility met every one of these advancements. Physical exams held for blacks seeking police jobs were met with protests and lawsuits. Increased housing opportunities were met with bombings. And the same year that Lincoln and Black Elementary School J.W. Ray were opened, another school for whites was built. And the name chosen for it was Stonewall Jackson, the quote, romantic figure of the war between the states. Well, and it's interesting because you mentioned you started going to high school in 1954,、uh-huh. which is when you know, we think of Brown versus Board of Education, but,、yeah. but you did not ever go to a school that was integrated. No, 
No, I didn't. Even in high school days, there weren't any interactions with the Caucasians. This is Margaret Benson, a resident of the historic 10th Street neighborhood and alumnus of Lincoln High School. W.T. White was our our, uh, superintendent. And when Lincoln High School wanted to go to a certain area to play a white school out of the city, he did not give permission for that. So we were not considered as champs, because I think we would have whipped them. <laughs> we would have whipped them, but, but as I start growing, start learning, then it kind of got, you know, it, it, it kind of did a little something to me to know that these kids could have this and they'd have that. W.T. White had been superintendent of the Dallas School District since 1945, and he held the same position until 1968, the longest tenure in the history of the district. And at no point in that time did any truly meaningful integration occur. Instead, in the immediate response to the Supreme Court's order to desegregate, the school board under White released a statement saying this. This is a fine and progressive school system. It is going to do what it is told to do by the proper authorities. But this board is insistent that before it directs any major change in the status of its schools, that its study and understanding of the problems involved shall be complete, and that its plan shall be worked out to the minutest detail. For White and his trustees, the minutest detail meant studying the relative degree of preparedness for teachers and students of different races in an attempt to demonstrate their incompatibility that completely ignored the overcrowding and under-resourcing still prevalent at the African-American schools. That meant a survey for administrators filled with such leading questions as Classrooms, to be effective in the growth and development of learners, should be free of tensions. In an integrated classroom, tension... Somehow, these transparent tactics managed to keep federal overseers at bay. The district's high schoolers, on the other hand, could see right through it. What he had to say to us, it didn't make sense to me. It was just some talk. Because mm-hmm. he, he wasn't, he was not interested in us. He was there for his dollar. And he had some ugly words to say before he went out as superintendent. Because I was in high school then. And uh, he wasn't a nice person. Margaret graduated in 1958, four years after the desegregation order came down. In that time, not a single black Dallas student was admitted into a white school. But in that same time, a number of new schools were constructed, and conspicuously, three were named for Confederate generals. John B. Hood, which has since been changed, Albert Sidney Johnston, and William L. Cabell. Before any of this, however, White and his board had approved a number of new textbooks for use in the district, 
including the 1949 publication Tales of Texas, which had its own unique spin to put on the events of the Civil War. Then came the sad days of the war between the states. Texas was in the South, so was under the flag of the Southern Confederacy. We now know that both sides were a little right and a little wrong, so we are glad to forget our family quarrel. Part 4 Poison Spring, Arkansas April 18, 1864 Major General Frederick Steele had led his Union troops to the city of Camden in an attempt to reach a larger battalion at Shreveport. But that group of Federal soldiers had been defeated, and now Steele's men were expected to sit tight, deep into enemy territory, with an ever-decreasing supply of food. There was corn to be foraged from nearby plantations, however, and so a detachment, led by Colonel James M. Williams, was sent off. Most of the group consisted of the 1st Kansas Colored, the first ever African-American regiment to fight for the U.S. Army. They were made up predominantly of former slaves who had once escaped this very region. The Confederates, still reeling from the loss of Camden, were able to anticipate this search for supplies and put 2,000 men between the detachment and their new base. Among them was Brigadier General William L. Cabell. What followed was a nightmare for the Union troops. Outnumbered and exhausted by food and sleep deprivation, William's men were routed and had to quickly retreat. The 1st Kansas were on the front lines and sustained the most casualties. But the true horror came after the battle was over. The South considered the North's conscription of their former slaves to be a, quote, stupendous wrong against humanity, and as such did not consider African Americans worthy of being treated as prisoners of war. Colonel Williams himself reported Many wounded men fell into the hands of the enemy, and they were murdered on the spot. But for some under Cabell's command, simply murdering wounded prisoners was not enough. And as they loaded up stolen wagons, they, quote, entered with great gusto into a game to see who could crush the most black heads beneath their wheels. William L. Cabell, leader of those men, a man with an elementary school named after him in 1958 and still in use today, had this to say about it. The number of killed of the enemy was very great, especially among the Negroes. You could track our troops by the dead bodies lying on the ground.
epilogue. I get, I understand, but until we are looking at economic development in sunny South Dallas, we're looking at housing, when we stop redlining, until we stop some real issue, we're just at the surface level. There's some root issue problems. When the this Dallas is Dallas School Board Trustee Bernadette Nuttall. A name is just a name change. People got to change and move. We in America, is the bigger than that, guys. It is bigger than that. We want justice for all, too. It's bigger than this name. It's hard to argue with her logic. The same impulse that drives us to fight a historic injustice also calls us to solve major issues of the here and now. But according to historian and author Michael Phillips, whose work was instrumental to the creation of this piece, we can't have one without the other. No, it is a real change because the propaganda that those monuments represented that the proper place of black people was in subordination to white people is the reason you had white flight to the suburbs in Dallas in the first place. White people were taught to fear blackness and brownness. And that Confederate propaganda promoted that idea. And that's what drained needed financial resources for the Dallas schools. And so the thing is totally connected. It's an investment to remove this reinforcement of white supremacist ideas that leads to unequal school funding in the first place. And if you don't have that discussion, then that fear is never addressed. And as long as we keep saying, well, that's too divisive, we're never going to get to do it. And we'll always have these problems. The names we choose to honor shape our perception of what has value. And that perception, in turn, shapes our children. A study out of the Journal of Blacks and Higher Education found a correlation between the outcomes of African-American middle and high schoolers and their feelings about being black. So what happens when we send black kids to a school named for a white supremacist by white supremacists for the purpose of perpetuating white supremacy? I stand before you today representing all the little brown and black faces that walk into the building called Stonewall Jackson. My son was one. Based on our experience at Stonewall Jackson Elementary as African Americans, I strongly call on you to change the culture, environment, and the name quickly. Stonewall Jackson must change the name. My black child's Stonewall Jackson experience was filled with racism, prejudices, and hate. I'll list a few that he was called by his peers. My child, all black kids are dumb. All black kids steal. All black kids stink. All black people can't be leaders. Black people are stupid. Black people eat watermelon. One kid actually licked him and said, shockingly, you don't taste like chocolate. These are my conversations in the evening. Imagine if this was your baby with these experiences, you would want the name changed now. From the staff, my son was sent to the office twice over retaliating when he was consistently called a nigger. I was called for a meeting to label him as a behavioral risk. No, that's the day I knew that I needed to withdraw my son from the stronghold of Stonewall Jackson's and its racist, vile, prejudiced culture and environment. There's no pride in saying he went to Stonewall Jackson. 
The Miseducation of Dallas County is powered by the Commit Partnership and produced by me, Joshua Kumler. It is executive produced by me, along with John Hill, Catherine Maliska, and Rob Shearer. Mixed and mastered by Will Short. Music by Trevor Yokochi. Voice acting from Anna Hagedorn, Bailey Rail, Braden Sosha, Ryan Woods, and Carly Kumler. Special thanks to Margaret Benson, Taylor Toynes, the staff at Bridwell, DeGallier, and Fondren Libraries at SMU, and as always, the seventh floor of the Central Dallas Public Library. Huge thanks to Michael Phillips, who trusted me with his research, even though it was raining. He has a book called White Metropolis that you really need to read. You can see all the times I cite him and a bunch of other people in the transcript on our website, commit2dallas.org. That's two like the number. This podcast is dedicated to educators everywhere. The future is in your hands. Oh, and one last fact check from school board trustee Miguel Solis. I do want to correct the record. One of the speakers earlier said uh, Jesse Jackson was Mr. October. That was a Reggie Jackson. Make sure we're clear on that. Thank you, Mr. President. We'll be back next month with more Miseducation. Education.